Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm joined today by my colleague Tom Temin of the Federal Drive. Tom, great to have you back as my co-host. It's excellent to be here. So Tom and I did a very similar interview with the Energy Department CIO, and we decided to uh, pair up again to talk with you, Jamie, because part of the reason is you're a new CIO to the federal government. You've only been the CIO since around February. So just give us a little bit of an update. How's your transition been to the new job? Talk a little bit about how you've gotten acclimated to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I've found it to be a fascinating place to work. I am working with some of the top attorneys and engineers in the intellectual property realm here in the United States. Uh, Of course, that's what attracted me to the job. But uh, one of the things I've decided is, of course, you got to listen to figure out what the job is. And um, God gave us two ears and one mouth so that I could listen twice as much as I talk. So what I've been doing is getting acclimated by understanding and learning a lot from the folks on the ground. Uh, I've been very surprised to note that uh, the average tenure for a lot of the employees here is about 22 years. So people spend their whole career here at the Patent and Trademark Office. So the competence and the uh, technical acumen is uh, far beyond anything I'm accustomed to. And uh, they're really experts in the areas of uh, trademark and patents, obviously. And you also have the issue that a lot of the workforce is scattered. There's a big telework program at USPTO because examiners do their work often in the field. And that must be something of a phenomenon for you. It really is. I did not realize until I got on board that our telework staff usually exceeds 7,500 every day. In fact, I'm looking at my executive CIO dashboard, and I'm noting that there's 7,680 teleworkers right now as we speak. So most of them are working at home doing the examinations, both in patents and trademarks. So it, it is a great challenge to ensure that they have secure access and the performance over the network and that our applications are always up and running. Jamie, talk a little bit about the way you you listened more than you talked. I, I enjoyed the uh, two ears and one mouth. So you had to listen twice as much as you talked. Did you have you done a welcome tour? Have you walked around and, and gone to each office? Have you have you kind of went to different patent and trademark offices around the country? How did you get a sense of what the PTO network looks like and what the needs of the employees are? I believe that you have to roll up your sleeves and go down to the line in the actual field. So what I've done is I've visited the different offices all around. I have yet to do a tour of the country, though. I'm trying to save the taxpayer a little money there. And I'm going to each of the regional offices here and uh, finding out all the different missions. Because one of the first things I said was that we need to do mission first. We're not doing IT for IT's sake. We actually have a mission to register trademarks and award patents. And if you can't tell me as an IT specialist how your job specifically relates to that mission, then we need to talk about how we redo that and ensure that we're mission first. So I've gone around and I've listened to a lot of the different missions that we have. As an example, of course, cybersecurity is near and dear to my heart. And so we have an obligation to ensure that all of our applicants, that their trade secrets are kept very private until they become public. And so once they are public, we have to publish them and ensure that the 
American public and the rest of the world, in fact, has access to our data. So it's sort of a schizophrenic nature there. On one hand, I'm protecting the data. On the other hand, I'm disseminating it. So there is those types of nuances that you have to consider in the mission that uh, we've been given here at PTO. I think that's a great point. You you have the the dual hat of, of hey, how do I protect the data until it's ready to go public? And, and that actually is a great segue to your background a little bit. What made you decide to come to the Patent Trademark Office? Because I think you spent almost your entire career in the private sector, except for your time with the U.S. Army. Yeah, in fact, a lot of people forget that the uh, CIO stint that I did under USAC, which stands for Universal Service Administrative Company, actually falls under the oversight of the FCC. Uh, in fact, if you look at your phone bills every month, there's a little entry there and it says universal access charge and it's the usf or the universal service fund which provides telecommunications where commercial entities will not put them for example if you're up in alaska and it's not very profitable for the telecom firm up there to run a line to you we actually provided a subsidy which made the line possible so that everybody can access emergency numbers for 911, as well as calling your local school, et cetera, et cetera. That fund has been around since the 1930s, and it's not really well known, but I served there for five years, and uh, it's a great fund. I'm very proud of my service there. But the question was, hey, you spend most of your time in the private world. What attracted you over to the PTO? And I will tell you that uh, Director Andre Yanku made a pitch, and he is a great salesman because what he said was there's a great challenge here to affect the U.S. economy for the positive. And I saw that. It's actually taking the challenge for a high-performing team of individuals to, and taking them to the next level and propelling them into the new modern technologies that we have and IT at our disposal, including AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, and all the like. So although people are very competent here, as usual in the government bureaucracy, what happens is you get comfortable. And so I am trying to take that challenge to make people feel comfortable being uncomfortable. Give us a sense of the state of IT at USPTO. I mean, at one time, all of the patent application information, all of the tracking was in the so-called shoeboxes, the wooden boxes that contained all of that. I think they're past digitizing all of the old shoeboxes, and everything now is electronic. But how modern is it relative to what the state of the art is in IT as you understand it? That's a great question because it's one of the first things that uh, Director Yanku asked me to uh, address. And that is the stability of our systems, being that they are so old. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty old, and just because you're old doesn't mean you're not good. So we have some very good systems, but they do need to come up to today's modern standards. As an example, uh, the Patent Office moved into its current facilities in the Alexandria area uh, about 18 years ago. And uh, when they established the data center here, it was state-of-the-art. Now, what we need to do is take advantage of the new data center technologies and the networking technologies that are out there. In fact, one of my major drives is to move everything toward the cloud or at least move what should be out in the cloud in the cloud. There are things you will always keep in-house, and we're determining that right now with a very good strategic plan moving forward. 
uh, working hand-in-hand with our business units, both patent trademarks and the appeals boards for both patents and trademarks. So we have a large mission to ensure that we're providing the public the service as well as all of our applicants the service. Now, Jason's going to have a lot of questions about cloud, but I wanted to ask you before we get to the cloud detail, the updates and the optimization you plan for the data center, how many data centers does USPTO operate? Do you plan to reduce that? And what will a modernized data center look like? Well, luckily, we don't have a data center sprawl. In fact, we have one major data center, and there might be, you could consider it another minor data center in another uh, location in Pennsylvania. So what we're doing is we're trying to ensure that the new data center technologies, especially the cloud infrastructure, uh, we can take advantage of that. So we don't have a problem with that. We just have a problem keeping up with everything. And as you well know, government entities do not necessarily need to own all the infrastructure in order to use it effectively. I want to get out of the business of purchasing hardware every five to ten years. Because if you don't, you're falling behind anyway. Jimmy, that's actually a great point because one of the the challenges that we're seeing with IT modernization more generally is this move, if you will, to manage services. Now, years ago, I think PTO was one of those people who tried this idea of seat management, and they've gone down the path over the years of kind of coming back towards, if you will, government-owned, government-operated or government-owned, contractor-operated. Is this part of a change in your philosophy or the PTO's philosophy for IT services, IT management? Are, are you trying to, based on your private sector experience, are you trying to bring in some of those best practices? That's exactly right. I mean, we should challenge everything to make it better, faster, and cheaper. So during those efficiency discussions I've had with the folks, especially with budget, what we want to do is make sure that the budget that we have aligns with what's available out in the private sector. And it appears, and through my experience, I know that the private sector can offer a lot more services at a more efficient rate than we currently do on the inside. So one of the things I'm challenging everybody is the not invented here syndrome. There are certain things we do that we have a monopoly on, and that primarily is patents and trademarks. But other than that, we should look to outside agencies for other tools and applications that we can use in a software suite. And so, obviously, you know, nobody does a payroll system on their own, and we're using very much government-approved FedRAMP applications in that regard in the enterprise. But what we want to do is differentiate based on that core application, and those would be developing the trademark applications and developing the patent applications to the point where we're serving both applicants and examiners. I have two major users out there. And so what we want to do is be able to apply the Internet services model for citizen services on applicants and then on the inside have state-of-the-art applications that we can use for search and um, understanding the docket reviews for patents and trademarks. And so insofar as that goes, there's a lot more that we can offer our users based on the new modern technology rather than what's been used in the past 15 to 20 years. And let me just circle back on on the, because we're talking a little bit about the private sector here. When you decided to take the job, I'm going to go back to when when the director of the USPTO said, hey, come come make change, right? This is a great opportunity for you. Was there any hesitation? Did you have to 
think about it because a lot of times when, when I've talked to CIOs in the past, they've said, well, I just happened upon the job or, you know, it kind of merges together two of my loves, you know, of, you know, something else and, and technology. What was the kind of underlying factor that really said, I'm going to go back in, into the government and take this job beyond, obviously, the director giving you a call? It's very interesting because it does take a lot to work for the government uh, based versus working out in the industry. And the main reason was the mission. I really saw the ability to make a difference in IT, especially with the U.S. economy, because if we make things better for the applicants and the entrepreneurs, we can have a, a direct effect on how that venture capital and all that private equity is placed. Uh, my goal is to take down the times it takes to apply and be registered in the trademark area or awarded a patent. And if we can do that, we can spur the economy even better. And also, we want to make things uh, more secure for the future. So with the ability to search using artificial intelligence, we can provide the public a better idea of whether or not a patent exists or not. And also if a trademark image is out there or not. And if we can provide that in a quick format, we can spur more activity. That gets to a question I had about the chain of events from application to the granting of a patent. And great parts of it are digital. But is it fully digital at this point? Are there gaps yet that you feel need to be filled in with some digital process, such as search, and inculcating that into the basic patent granting or denying process? Uh, tell us about the about the chain of events, if you will, from the beginning to the end and how automated it really is. It is not as automated as I would like it, nor I think as the examiners or applicants would like it. But what we have to do is ensure that no matter what we automate, we always put the man in the loop there. Not only uh, do we have to ensure that it goes, uh, the process goes according to the application process, but we have to make sure that it's all legal and it's defendable. And so that's one of the things about automation. Uh, you have to be careful to ensure that there's a man in the loop, whether it be um, an attorney examiner or an engineer who has expertise in that regard. Uh, you talked about search. One of the first things uh, I did when I came on board was actually take some of the classes for how to apply for a patent and a day in the life of an examiner. And some of the great things I found out was they're actually using Boolean searches in, in many of the ways to look up if prior art is what they call it, is relevant to the ap applicant. And so uh, using a Boolean search for my CS 101 days and, and having these engineers actually parse out 20, 30 lines of uh, code is very archaic. And so we do have a new, new search tool that's available for them. And we're about to publish it, but we want to make sure that we work with our unions and we work with all the examiners to ensure that we're getting the right application out at the right time. So that includes using agile DevOps uh, processes. And that's what we're here to do is take that high-performing team to the next level. All right, Jamie, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we, we may want to talk a little bit more about that search tool if you're able to. Otherwise, there's something called the Palm, which we can catch up on. But first, we're going to take a quick break. My guess is... Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller. And I'm Tom Temin. And you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin. Our guest today, 
is Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. Now, Jamie, before break, you talked about a new search tool. You went back to school, if you will. You learned how patents are done, the, the life of an examiner, and you said, why are they still using Boolean search? We have to make it better. And you've gone about that process in a short amount of time. So talk about that new search tool. What are some of the benefits you expect it to bring? What I see in the new search tool is the ability to put context and a graphical user interface around it using a lot of the new internet technologies that are able to search different databases as well. So you're not limited to the parsing of individual uh, Boolean logic. You can actually search on a wider variety and in a more contextual area. So I'm hoping that this actually improves the time that examiners have when they can narrow down their searches for relevant prior art. And just so our audience, because even though we are a technology show, just in case if someone doesn't remember or is not familiar with it, the Boolean search is what basically has really run the Internet for a long time. Like you put the words in and or or. Is that, do I have that correct? That is correct. Uh, complete with parentheses and minus certain char or character sets where you can go before and after with wild cards as star, etc. So, you know, it, it's really basic CS 101 stuff. And the other issue with search is that in the case of a patent examination or something in a very specific field, you might need to go more deeply specific than a general search engine is capable of doing in a given domain like medicine or science or physiology, whatever the case might be for that patent, physics, chemistry, can the tool that you're developing be tailored for specific domains where a word might mean something different than it would mean in another domain that another examiner would be in? Yes, we're um, expecting the expertise of our examiners to actually crack that code, but we do see a lot of applicability with artificial intelligence, specifically on natural language processing, where you use those algorithms and the meanings behind those algorithms in the context of pharmaceuticals or agriculture or manufacturing. So we are looking at those models right now, and we are refining through machine learning the natural language processing of the term is NPL or non-patent literature, which means that we don't store all this information, and we have an obligation to look out for all the different information to ensure that there's not a patent elsewhere. That's a fascinating tool, especially as you talk about using artificial intelligence. What's the timing around the launch of this search tool? I know you said there's a few steps still to go. Oh, yeah. It won't be next month, but we are doing the machine learning to try to get the accuracy rates to an, an acceptable format, maybe 80 or 90% acceptable, and then we can ask our experts because we don't want to put something in the production line which will actually slow down the environment. We want to speed it up. So we're trying to use the um, data sets from other uh, investigations and research to get the accuracy rates so that the when we do introduce it, it'll be uh, it'll actually improve the time and not slow them down. Is this something you're developing in-house? Are you using a contractor or a combination of both? And I guess my follow question would be, will you get a patent on this new search technology? Well, as everybody in the government knows, you're not able to benefit. So, no, I don't get any patents on it. But uh, the fact of the matter is we are using internal and external expertise. So we do have uh, some great 
artificial intelligence uh, PhDs on staff, and we're asking other um, entrepreneurial endeavors in artificial intelligence to help us. We've actually had a couple of academic I guess, conferences that have come to the PTO and they have spoken on the different data sets and they're helping out develop those algorithms in natural language processing. So it's been a great uh, experience for me to learn from all the different academics uh, that are out there. When you guys roll that out, please let us know. It's something we definitely want to follow up on. Sounds like a great combination of making government services better and using some modern technology. Jamie, let me shift uh, gears a little bit. You wrote a recent blog, and that's probably one of the main reasons we're talking is because I saw this blog about upgrading the Palm system. Let's maybe dive into that a little bit. What is the Palm system first, and then talk a little bit about the effort to really make it better and modernize it. The Palm is the patent application location and monitoring system. It is the major application that's been used by the patent examiners for the last 20 years. And what happened was last year we had a a POM failure. And in essence, we needed to recover from that failure. And in order to do so, we need to modernize not just the application, which is the new modernization efforts we've talked about, but we've also had to take the old hardware and make sure that we could support it. So we containerized the POM application and moved it from the old platform onto new hardware. And so we retired an old HP 9000 system just recently and put it on new hardware. And it was a great experience for myself and the team because there was a lot of fear to overcome based on the complexity of the system. Many people would say that some of the systems have been designed, not necessarily for this, but you know what a Rube Goldberg machine is and so on and so forth with the dominoes. And they're afraid that they didn't capture all of the different uh, parts and pieces. Well, we went through six weeks of uh, nights and weekends where we did exhaustive testing and proved to ourselves that we could do that. So I, I was very proud of the team coming out of it because I think now they have a lot of confidence in themselves about how they really do know the application and they're no, no longer fearful of taking on a bigger and more challenging efforts. That's a pretty profound change to turn off an HP 9000. I, w- I was going to ask which museum you sent it to, but to inter- <laughs> clearly whatever the new hardware is, is running a different operating system. I think that was a version of Unix or something. And so did you have to create an application programming interface to the operating system surrounding all these containers that encapsulated the original application? Luckily, no, we didn't have to do that. We did the HPUX containerization on the new hardware. The emulation mode was what we were very concerned about to ensure that there would be no faults or failures during reads, millions of transactions per second, and the reads and writes to the database. So that was part of our exhaustive testing to ensure there was no corruption of data as we were writing all those millions of transactions. And let's put a finer point on containerization, because sometimes you hear about it and you think of it as a security or as a DevOps. I think you're using containerization, though, maybe in a different way? Yeah, exactly right. We're using it to move the application from one hardware to another. Okay, because I just want to be clear on that, because I think one of the big buzzwords we hear in government these days is, well, you got to move to containerization, whatever that means. So I think putting a finer point is helpful. Uh 
thoughts. So how is the new system working? And what are some of those lessons that you've learned from that modernization effort? It's about a thousand times faster now. And it's about 20% more efficient on the power. And we have a failover that's automatic uh, because, as you stated, it's a very old system. And so we replaced that old system with new hardware such that the new hardware is easy to use and easy to maintain. So the modernization efforts that that shows is we can do it and we will do it. So now we're looking uh, at redundancy not only failover, but having physical sites that are redundant, separated apart from our location here at Alexandria. And we're looking elsewhere to the cloud for the modernization effort for those resilient systems. And with a system that now runs a thousand times faster than what it replaced in all these transactions, what about the network connections to the users out there, many of whom are remote? What are you doing with respect to creating the bandwidth you need to be able to take advantage of that speed? Now it's not a question of bandwidth. It's a question of how quickly the examiners can get all the information. So really, we've noticed an uh, uptick in our response rates and the fact that everybody seems to be a lot happier with the new modern uh, hardware. Network has not been a problem, but I do see that as a future endeavor to look to the industry for better and uh, faster solutions. I want to take a quick break, but before we do that, just let me ask you, you mentioned that this gives some confidence to look at future modernization efforts, whether it's around the Palm system or others. Is this basically laying the groundwork? Was this kind of your first, hey, this is the strategy we're going down. Let's let's make this a proof of concept. Look, we did it. We were successful. Now we can apply it to other areas, the same, if you will, process, same concept of modernizing, getting off old hardware. Was this, I guess, the proof of concept? Yes, it was. Uh, They actually did the proof of concept in the November timeframe before I was here, but this was the actual execution of that proof of concept. But I do agree with your assertion, and we need to have small incremental wins. I want to do evolution here at the USPTO, not revolution. In revolution, people get their nose bloodied. I want to be very thoughtful and very directive about how we're going to move forward. So we'll be fast followers, but I don't know if we'll be, you know, bleeding edge. So we're going to modernize to the point where we know what we're doing and we're doing it well. All right, very good. That's a good advice. I like that. Evolution, not revolution. And so no one's nose gets too bloodied. Let's take a quick break. My guest is uh, Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller. And I'm Tom Temin. And you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin, Federal Drive. And our guest today is Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. Jamie, we're talking uh, before break a little bit about the Palm system and that IT modernization effort. Let's take a step back and talk more broadly. What is your IT modernization strategy? And definitely hit upon that RFI that you guys put out recently about stabilizing critical IT applications. We need to stabilize before we can modernize. In other words, we have to have that failover and redundant systems in place before we really put the new applications out there. 
the thing about it is if I can stabilize by modernizing, I'll do that because I don't want to spend money that I'm going to have to throw away. So we have that in mind in our head, but we have a full court press right now with 19 different initiatives going on, 19 different teams, and we are stabilizing the entire environment at the PTO. And that's ensuring that we have taken our technical debt and we are overcoming all of our um, end-of-life products as well as upgrading to current levels. Once that stabilization is complete, and that's the current RFI that's out there, we're going to concentrate on that for the next 6 to 18 months. Then once that's complete, in the 12 to 36-month time frame, that's when I go for the modernization. And the modernization will include cloud-first mentality. In other words, if we can put it in the cloud, we will. If not, if we have to keep it based on our current technology and design and architecture, we will keep it in our core data center until such time that we can have a hybrid. So there's like a red, yellow, and green. The green is the cloud. We want to get out there as quick as we can. If we have to, we'll have those yellow or cautionary hybrid uh, solutions, and only if we have to will we keep things in our data center. That's the red projects. So based on the complexity and so forth, we're going to get out to the cloud as soon as we can and get the new modern technology in-house so that our examiners and applicants can use the new technology to their advantage and be more efficient, you know, better, cheaper, faster. That's the, uh, that's the mantra. just wanted to ask a basic question about cloud, and that is aside from the fact that there's a cloud smart strategy that succeeded the cloud first strategy. What benefits do you actually expect to get from the cloud? Is it lower cost or better performance or some combination? Well, of course, it's the combination, and you have to be very careful about how you do that because I've known agencies to go to the cloud and only to uh, spend a lot more money than they anticipated because they didn't pen the contracts correctly or they didn't understand their usage correctly. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. There has to be a good procurement strategy as well as a design and architectural philosophy to go to the cloud. It's funny, I did cloud before it was called cloud. I was actually in the data center business in the early century here. <laughs> how old I am now. But anyway, uh, it was with a firm called Globic, the Global Internet Exchange. It actually went bankrupt and it was delisted off the NASDAQ. The three years I worked there, we made it profitable and we relisted on the Amex. And that was one of my big claims to fame as far as understanding how cloud works for firms like Travelocity, Walmart.com, TheKnot.com. And so insofar as that goes, I, I have a real cursory and intimate understanding of how we should go cloud first uh, for the USPTO. 19 different teams stabilizing the environment. When you walked in, were you taken aback by the state of the technology of PTO? Or was it just as you kind of looked at the different pieces and parts of the mission, you realized, hey, it's, it's just time for that upgrade? I believe the latter. It was time for the upgrade. I do know that uh, most business value is derived at sucking the most value out of what you currently have invested. But it is time to uh, overcome our technical debt and actually modernize. So it's more of, it's time now, let's move forward on a full court press. And when you talk about the technical debt, did you put a cost on it? I remember a former federal CIO, Tony Scott, talking about three, 
five, seven billion dollars across the entire government of technical debt. That's probably the first time I remember someone bringing that up. You, have you guys been able to put a number on it? No, we haven't put a number on it that way because we're much more forward-looking and concentrating on our budgets and making sure that uh, we confer or we actually align with the president's budget. And we're making sure that our investments in the future are going to align with our current prioritization. So that was another thing that you mentioned what I was surprised about. Well, I was surprised that there wasn't a prioritization across the PTO. Each individual unit had their priorities and they all knew what they were, but there hadn't been a prioritization effort. And so once we stabilized, we were able to prioritize all the systems based on their criticality for business function, not just for IT, but for business function. And so based on those priorities, we've now laid out a good budget for FY20 and FY21, and we're executing against that right now. This idea of technical debt kind of implies that at one time the mode for federal acquisition and planning was simply buy, set up, and kind of set and forget. And more CIOs seem to be thinking in a mode of the moment we buy this, let's plan for its obsolescence in five or ten years and have a kind of a life cycle approach even to brand new technology. Is that a good way to characterize how you're starting to look at it? That's excellent. In fact, that is industry best practice. One of the things that I've influenced here is the thought of loosely coupling everything. You don't put something in deployment unless you can rip it out. And having that sort of design philosophy, then in five years, we don't know what the technologies will be. We don't know what the disruptors will be, but we want to be able to take advantage of those disruptors when they happen. If you don't design for taking things out, then you're really losing the bigger picture of taking advantage of technologies when they come to fore. When you talk about the RFI for stabilization, you, you offered up some good timelines around it. Do you expect some sort of acquisition to come from that RFI? Do you have an acquisition strategy yet? Is there any timing around that you could talk to? Yes. Uh, like I said, it's the 6 to 18 months, but the stabilization effort, I imagine, will go out very shortly because we want to ensure that we're stabilizing quickly. So one of the things that I also came to find out, and this you know from industry, you have to work hand-in-hand hand with your legal and procurement folks in order to make things happen. So there's a concerted effort underway to relook at the way it was done before and change it to do it better in the future, using those agile DevOps examples from other government agencies that really work. So we want to take a lot of the lessons learned. In fact, there's some great federal programs that our leaders have just attended. Uh, it's down in Houston. It's put on by NASA. Well, my folks came back from that leadership seminar and were so impressed that they put on a whole learning organization symposium uh, just this past week, and they entitled it, Houston, We've Had a Problem. And in essence, they said, even though that we don't have uh, life or limb to worry about in our mission, we did have a major critical outage last summer with Palm. So we're going to use that to become a learning organization, much like NASA learned from their Apollo 11 challenges and their Challenger uh, problems. So we have this whole theory now of learning organization failing small and failing fast, but learning from that 
because the only failure is if you don't learn. We're going through this whole new design philosophy where it's okay to fail as long as it's not a big fail. Right. You don't want to splash down. And I guess your reference to the outage may be the answer to my question, but with respect to stabilization, it's always good to have stability. What are your metrics for a stabilized environment? The metrics for stabilization will occur based on not just the uh, performance during the daytime, our regular metrics with uptime, network throughput, performance on the servers, but also the ability to fail over and then fail over to a redundant site. In other words, we have to practice what we've preached on failover. And there's a lot of people who are fearful of doing that because prior to this, we haven't had the investment in those redundant systems. Because we're making a concerted effort, I'm trying to get over the fear that we can fail over to a redundant site and not miss a beat in any of the performance. Let's take a quick break. My guest is uh, Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller. And I'm Tom Temin. And you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin. Our guest today is Jamie Holcomb, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. Jamie, we've talked a lot about the Palm system and that modernization effort, more broadly the, the IT modernization effort. What are some of your other priorities that you are trying to get done over the next you know, six or nine months? So those will include the modernization planning to ensure that we're doing cloud first, as well as the AI and machine learning part using robotic process automation or any of those new algorithms that we talked about for search. Those are my current priorities for the next six to nine months. When you talk about your modernization initiatives, you mentioned those 19 different working groups or or plans that you're in the middle of for IT modernization. Are they mostly in the back office side? Are they on the the front side mission focus? Are they combination? How, How would you kind of break them down? I would break them down to say that most of them are the applications involved with patents and trademarks. Now, I've been very lucky on the enterprise side to have a finance that's fairly reliable, and I don't want to jinx myself in saying that, but uh, we have a group in the finance department called the Fee Processing Next Generation, where we actually process fees as a critical mission to the application process for both patents and trademarks. So we have to consider all of those as mission critical for the business to um, succeed, Uh, but most of the 19 applications are stabilizing patent and trademark. All right. And, and then the other piece of this we have to talk through is uh, data, data analytics. I mean, really, the Patent and Trademark Office is a big data agency, maybe one of the biggest big data agencies. Maybe discuss your efforts around that, and then what capabilities maybe are you looking to add? One of the great things that I found out was we have petabytes of information that uh, we actually disseminate to the public based on requests. But uh, we have both an enterprise data warehouse and a data lake or a data reservoir. So our reservoir, we do a lot of our researching for, from our economist, and our enterprise data warehouse we use for many of our reporting uh, up to the hill and so forth, uh, financials and whatnot. So I'm very happy with our current state of affairs with our data governance. But what we've found, of course, is over the years, your data needs to be cleaned up in a lot of respects. Because if I'm going to use these artificial intelligent machine learning, 
if I'm putting bad data in, I'm going to get bad, da- uh, bad results out. So we will have a concerted effort to ensure that all the data is cleansed before we run it through our AI and machine learning uh, algorithms. And we want to do a lot of the ingestion into our algorithms from this data lake and data uh, repository. And that gets to the topic of the human skills, the skill sets, the reskilling of the federal workforce, and also the agency mandate to all have a chief data officer. Tell us about some of the human capital concerns or initiatives you might have with respect to IT and that whole era of data that every agency is finding itself entering. Yes, of course, the whole thing about human capital is attracting the right people. So hopefully we can convince some of these folks that this is a great mission, just like I was convinced. And it does take a special person. We're trying to also attract some of the academic talent, as I told you, uh, holding AI symposiums and providing the ability for academics to come and work with us as either interns or externs so that we can share a lot of this uh, research and development with the academic community. So insofar as that goes, we've actually attracted some data scientists into our ranks, and we're hoping to repeat that process. Uh, There's the other thing, of course, about attracting the right cybersecurity talent. And we're trying to uh, reach out to other colleges and universities to ensure that we have the right people coming into the new jobs that are opening up at the entry level. Uh, We do need some experience, of course, uh, but we'd like to grow the folks as well. So it's, as you know, it's very difficult to attract the right people to government service, but if you appeal to their sense of mission and then the obvious challenges that they can overcome in data science, it's a pretty compelling story. Now, I know over the years, the PTO has been out in front of most agencies with a chief data officer, or in your case, I know uh, Tom Beach is the chief data strategist. Talk a little bit about where that that role is playing, whether it's Tom's role or if you guys are going to name a new chief data officer of sorts, and how does that fit in with you as the chief information officer and a lot of what's the difference between data and information? I always love that discussion. Oh, yeah, exactly right. So Tom and I just spoke this morning at length on a lot of these AI initiatives that we're going to be conducting. So uh, we are meeting daily. His office is right next to mine. And so the fact of the matter is information is what we use. Data is how we get it. So data is near and dear to the heart and the protection of data, too. So we never want to forget about the cyber side of things. And then we have the mission to disseminate all that public information as well. So it's a very complex, symbiotic relationship, and uh, Tom and I are attacking it head on. Jamie, this has been a fascinating conversation. We are out of time, so let me first thank my guest, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Chief Information Officer Jamie Holcomb. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. And let me thank my colleague, Tom Temin. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Great opportunity to join you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.